Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 362. Today's big Bible questions are, what sort of new command did Jesus give his disciples before death, and will only 144,000 be saved? Well, I guess I kept reading that even though the music had stopped. My bad for the long title. Happy Wednesday to you anyway, dear friends, or happy Christmas, Adam, as my daughter Phoebe likes to say. Welcome to new listeners from Hamburg, Germany, Guatemala City, Guatemala, Hong Kong, Singapore, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Monroe, Louisiana. Thank you so much for joining us. Two topics today, and I think we will begin with the one from Revelation. 144,000 is quite an important number to many sects and religious groups, that is S-E-C-T-S, sects and religious groups, quite an outsized importance relative to the biblical importance of the number, because you see, 144,000 only appears in Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 14 in the Bible. Yet many groups, and especially even non-Christian groups like Islam, New Age movements, splinter groups, cult groups, etc., have 144,000 as a central part of their theology. For instance, Islamic people consider the number of companions of Muhammad to be around 100, to be exactly 144,000. The Raelists believe that there will be 144,000 people who will continue on after some unspecified future disaster. The Skoptists in Russia believe that Jesus will return when there are a total of 144,000 Skoptists believers. But you know what? I'm not holding out hope for that because the name Skoptzist is far too difficult to pronounce or spell for them to be able to attract 144,000 adherents, uh, seeing as how it is S-K-O-P-T-Z-I-S-T. And there's some other reasons why you probably aren't going to rush out to the recruiting office anytime soon and sign up to be a Skoptzist, but I'm not going to go into those there. The Moonies, by, founded by Reverend Sun Myung Moon, believe that Jesus must find 144,000 saints to fulfill some mission that I honestly am not clever enough to understand, even after reading it twice. And the Mormons believe that there will be 144,000 high priests in total. And finally, most famously, the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is a group of almost 9 million people that is a cult, believes that there will only be 144,000 believers from the time Jesus comes back, dating back to uh, the resurrection of Jesus. So in in other words, so over the 2,000 years or so of human history, there will only be 144,000 believers who will be resurrected into heaven to spend eternity with God. Now, if you're doing the math, you realize that this belief leaves some 98% of the current Jehovah's Witnesses out in the cold, not to mention all of the ones that have died since the 1800s. The JWs believe that these other believers won't go to heaven, but they will be resurrected and live on the earth. It won't be as good, but it'll be decent, I guess, based on what I've read of their theology. Now, I share all of this to point out the folly of going beyond what is written in the Word of God or having doctrine and beliefs that are not even remotely found in the Bible. So, are the Jehovah's Witnesses correct about their views on the 144,000? Let's read Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 
in the Christian Standard Bible to find out. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgin. virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water." And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's command and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labor since their works follow them. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel who also had a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came after from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the horses, out of the press up to the horses' bridles for about 180 miles. And so that we can have the fullness of the Bible's teaching on the 144,000, here's the Revelation 7 passage I mentioned earlier as well. Revelation 7 verse 2 says, Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And by the way, that's 12,000 sealed from each tribe, if you keep reading. So what do we learn in Scripture about this group of 144,000 people? Well, we learn a few things. Number one, they are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now, this would seem to rule out most American Jehovah's Witnesses, including the founder, Charles Totsie Russell, who was born in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, which is not in Israel, in case you were wondering. His parents were Scotch-Irish, which is also not Israel. Number two, we learn that the 144,000 stand with Jesus on Mount Zion and have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Number three, we learn that they were the only ones able to learn the song from heaven that John hears when he is watching the scene unfold. And interestingly enough, it appears that the 144,000 are actually on earth at this point, not in heaven. Number four, we learn that the 144,000 are virgins, which again rules out many Jehovah's Witnesses from being in this elite group, including possibly the founder, who was married for almost 20 years before his wife separated from him, claiming mental cruelty. Now, he didn't have any children that we know of, so maybe, but still, married for 20 years, hmm. Maybe not a virgin. Number five, we learn that the 144,000 do not lie and are blameless in terms of the truth, which is a particular problem for the early Jehovah's Witnesses because they falsely predicted the return of Jesus many, many, many times, like a lot. Now, where the rest of the beliefs about the 144,000 that some of these splinter groups hold is a bit of a mystery because the Bible just says so little about this group of people beyond what we just talked about. Much of what these various splinter groups believe about this appears to really be invented whole cloth apart from the Bible. Will only 144,000 people be able to go to heaven is the GAW's belief? Well, I actually think this is a very, very, very easy biblical claim to dispute, and we can do it without moving around too much in Scripture. Go back to Revelation chapter 7. Notice what comes right after these 144,000 people are numbered and counted. We read in verse 9, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So who is this vast number? Is it all of the Christians in heaven? No, this vast and uncountable multitude represents, quote, the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, says verse 14. These are only those saved and in heaven who came out of the seven years of tribulation. How many of them are there? Well, we don't know because as John says, it's a vast number that nobody could count. Now, this vast number of people who are in heaven must assuredly logically be larger than 144,000 because the 144,000 was able to be counted and numbered, but this group was not. Also, it's probably worth considering that the kings of Israel and Judah conducted censuses that calculated the total number of people uh, in this in the their countries in various places or even their armed soldiers. And and multiple times they did a census and came up with over a million people. So the point being there that the claim that only 144,000 will be in heaven is very in easily contradicted by the vast, uncountable multitude of Revelation 7-9, which has to be over a couple of million because people were able to count to over a couple of million back in that time. So, 
of greater spiritual import, let's turn to our John 13 passage. Uh, Not that the Revelation passage was unimportant, but the discussion about the 144,000, probably not the most important truth you're going to hear this year, at least I hope it's not. But we are going to hear an important truth in John 13, where Jesus gives his disciples a new command. So what is this new command? Well, let's go read. John chapter 13, verse 1. Before the fast Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. And Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus, and Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, He's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. And when he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas and Simon Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, What you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. 
Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So tonight in the prep for this episode, while I was reading through the scriptures before writing the episode and recording, I kind of noticed that new part of John 13. Uh, Not for the first time, but I noticed it in a deep way for the first time. It stood out to me. How can love one another be a new command to Jesus' disciples? Now, I guess he specifically had not told them prior to this, all right, you guys love each other, but he's told them, and I'm sure he's told other people uh, multiple times, he's told them to love their neighbor as themselves, and he told them who their neighbor is, basically everybody that has a need that comes across their path. So is this command new because he's telling them to love each other? I guess that's possible. I do find it interesting, though, that John, writing in the epistles of 1 John, 2 John, I think, might have been 3 John, but two times, he says that the command to love each other, or the command to love your brothers and sisters, is not a new command, but an old command that they had since the beginning. I guess it's possible that John is referring to the beginning as the beginning of the church, but I actually think something different might be happening here. There is something in Jesus' command that really is new, brand new for his disciples. And we see it like in the second part of that command where Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. The new command in my view, I think, is not merely to love one another, that's great, but to love each other just as I have loved you. That is revolutionary. And it really is new. And it had to have been mind-blowing for the disciples. Now, the reason I believe this is because of the foot-washing episode we read earlier in John 13. Consider how this episode of foot-washing begins, how John introduces it. He says in verse 1, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John's saying, okay, so Jesus loved us, his disciples, and he loved us to the end. And then right after this, it's the foot washing. So I think John is saying this is one of the ways and the way how Jesus loved us. And then notice how after Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, which you got to understand would be incredibly unexpected. They should have washed his feet. He was the teacher. He was the Lord. He was the master Yet he watched their fate, a very menial task. But this is how Jesus explains him doing that. He says in verse 14, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're speaking rightly since that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. That's huge. So I believe that the new command of loving each other here that Jesus is referring to is exemplified by this foot washing. Not so much that we should have sort of a regular foot washing ceremony every Sunday morning, like going through the same exact motions that Jesus did. I mean, if you do that, that's fine. But I think he's going beyond just saying merely, oh, guys, 
keep each other's feet clean. That's so important to me that you keep each other's feet clean. No, it's it's beyond that. What Jesus is saying is we should serve each other in love, taking care of each other's needs, lowering ourselves to help others out and outdoing each other in showing honor, as another part of the Bible says. Jesus is telling his disciples and you and me to love each other in the exact same self-sacrificing, servant-hearted, and humble manner that he loved them. Again, I say it's revolutionary, and it is most certainly new. Well, let's continue into Second Chronicles chapter 27, verse 1. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Isaiah had done. In addition, he didn't enter the Lord's sanctuary, but the people still behaved corruptly. Jotham built the upper gate of the Lord's temple, and he built extensively on the wall of Ophel, He also built cities in the hill country of Judah and fortresses and towers in the forest. He waged war against the king of the Ammonites. He overpowered the Ammonites, and that year they gave him 7,500 pounds of silver, 6,000 bushels of wheat, and 60,000 bushels of barley. They paid him the same in the second and third year, so Jotham strengthened his position because he did not waver in obeying the Lord his God. Let's read that again. So Jotham strengthened his position because he did not waver in obeying the Lord his God. As for the rest of the events of Jotham's reign, along with all his wars and his ways, note that they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Jotham rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. His son Ahaz became king in his place. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the Lord's sight like his ancestor David, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made cast images of the Baals. He burned incense in Ben-Hanam Valley and burned his children in the fire, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places on the hills and under every green tree. So the Lord his God handed Ahaz over to the king of Aram, He attacked him and took many captives to Damascus. Ahaz was also handed over to the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. Pekah, son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all brave men, because they had abandoned the Lord God of their ancestors. An Ephraimite warrior named Zikri killed the king's son, Masaiah, Azrakam, governor of the palace, and Elkanah, who was second to the king. Then the Israelites took 200,000 captives from their brothers, women, sons, and daughters. They also took a great deal of plunder from them and brought it to Samaria. A prophet of the Lord named Oded was there. He went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Look, the Lord God of your ancestors handed them over to you because of his wrath against Judah, but you slaughtered them in a rage that has reached heaven. Now you plan to reduce the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, to slavery. Are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Listen to me and return the captives you took from your brothers, for the Lord's burning anger is on you. So some men, who were leaders of the Ephraimites, Azariah son of Jehoianan, Barakiah son of Meshillamoth, Jehezekiah son of Shalom, and Amasa son of Hadlai, stood in opposition to those coming from the war. They said to them, You must not bring the captives here, for you plan to bring guilt on us from the Lord to add to our sins and our guilt, 
for we have much guilt and burning anger is on Israel. The army left the captives and the plunder in the presence of the officers and the congregation. Then the men who were designated by name took charge of the captives and provided clothes for their naked ones from the plunder. They clothed them, gave them sandals, food and drink, dressed their wounds, and provided donkeys for all the feeble. The Israelites brought them to Jericho, the city of Palms, among their brothers. Then they returned to Samaria. At that time, King Ahaz asked the king of Assyria for help. The Edomites came again, attacked Judah, and took captives. The Philistines also raided the cities of the Judean foothills and the Negev of Judah. They captured and occupied Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, and Gedaroth, as well as Soko, Timnah, and Gimzo with their surrounding villages. For the Lord humbled Judah because of King Ahaz of Judah, who threw off restraint in Judah and was unfaithful to the Lord. Then King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria came against Ahaz. He oppressed him and did not give him support. Although Ahaz plundered the Lord's temple in the palace of the king and of the rulers and gave the plunder to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. At the time of his distress, King Ahaz himself became more unfaithful to the Lord. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, and he said, Since the gods of the king of Aram are helping them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were the downfall of him and of all Israel. Then Ahaz gathered up the utensils of God's temple, cut them into pieces, shut the doors of the Lord's temple, and made himself altars on every street corner in Jerusalem. He made high places in every city of Judah to offer incense to other gods, and he angered the Lord, the God of his ancestors. As for the rest of his deeds and all his ways, from beginning to end, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. His son Hezekiah became king in his place. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain in the season of spring rain. The Lord makes the rain clouds and he will give them showers of rain and crops in the field for everyone. For the idols speak falsehood, and the diviners see illusions. They relate empty dreams and offer empty comfort. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They suffer affliction because there is no shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherd, so I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of armies has tended his flock. The house of Judah, he will make them his majestic steed in battle. The cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, and every ruler, all will go out from him together. They will be like warriors in battle, trampling down the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them, and they will put horsemen to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah and deliver the house of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them, and they will be as though I had never rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Ephraim will be like a warrior, and their hearts will be glad as if with wine. Their children will see it and be glad. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle and gather them because I have redeemed them. They will be as numerous as they once were. Though I sow them among the nations, they will remember me in the distant lands. They and their children will live in return. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, but it will not be enough for them. The Lord will pass through the sea of distress and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the Nile will dry up. The pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will come to an end. I will strengthen them in the Lord and they will march in his name. This is the Lord's declaration. Hallelujah. Well, friends, we've only got about eight more days to to go. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he guide you. May he 
give you a wonderful time of celebrating the birth of Jesus and a fantastic new year. Good day to you and Godspeed.